Well, I'll tell you what, if you are unfamiliar with uh, various components, today uh, in, our, in our nation is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Back on a very dreary day of January 22nd, 1973, was the day the, Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand and changed the, the possibility of, of people being able to be allowed to, be, to end life at any moment that they chose when it came to the baby in the womb. Recently, this has come back into the news on December 1st with the case of, 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 of Jackson versus Dobbs. But I can tell you one thing, that Christians ought to pay attention when, when the culture is wrestling with uh, valuing life. I mean, how many new parents here? Just real quick, raise your hand. New parents, okay. Wow, I mean, I remember that moment. What, what a blessing it was. Like it was yesterday when, when it was like no one else could get your child in, that, in the hospital room to stop crying, but then they heard a familiar voice, and, and it was mine. And I held this little baby, and I walked him over, walked her over to the sink, and you think, how are they going to fit in there? And there they are, all bundled up, and they're in this warm water just staring at and you think, how could someone take a look at something so precious and decide that it's not valuable? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 139, certainly uh, he wasn't writing the psalm because he knew we were having Sanctity of Life uh, Sunday in our culture. But certainly Psalm 139 does speak to the emphasis of what is going on. And I think it's so important to, to recognize just the value of, of what God does in, in giving us purpose and giving us meaning. You often see this, like, for example, the, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49. He says this to me. He says this. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. You know, I look out at, at, at a congregation like this, and I think of, of, of all of you at, at, at a, a moment in time where God knew you before I ever knew you. God knew your purpose. He knew your plan. And that doesn't mean, by the way, purpose and plan. Like, he's not saying, oh, I'm going to figure out your purpose is your vocation. Your purpose is embedded in the fact that you are an image bearer of the living God by which that means you are a minister of everlasting life where you can go and share this gospel truth where only life will have meaning. It's not just what you do that brings meaning. It's who you are as an image bearer of the living God. And that is certainly what the psalmist uh, desires for us to continue to reflect on. And I love how the psalms do this for us because David is very open about how he thinks and what he's feeling and, and how he's ascribing uh, truth and how he's ascribing praise to the living God. And we're going to watch him do that in Psalm 139. But just from an interpretive standpoint, I just want you to recognize most often when you come to, to a variety of books, epistles, psalms are very similar to this as well. You're really looking for this situational component that is giving rise to some level of praise or some level of, of, of pondering about who God is and why he does what he does. And you're also looking for this reception of truth that the psalmist steps back for a moment and says, that is my God. And believers, that God who knew you by name, that God who knew you from your mother's womb, who gave you purpose in life, who marked you with his own image, that God wants us to praise him. That's what the psalmist does and in this situation, but you'll notice in this psalm, the praise comes and you see the situational reality of David towards the end of the psalm in verse 19, which we'll get to, but just so that you realize, there is a situation of, that is bringing David harm and he says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. The situational reality that David faced as the king of Israel was that there were often people who didn't like him being king. There were often nations who didn't enjoy Israel's prominence at one particular time in history. And yet David, in the midst of people who would like to take his life, 
reminds himself of the living God, the way he works, who he is, how close he is to him, so that he could calm his own heart to say, my God has a purpose, and there's no one who will take my life in a premature way without God being the sanction of when that occurs. And now he starts this particular psalm uh, helping us realize this important praiseworthy element. What I think it's important for us to realize is that believers, this morning, this is what I want to reflect on, is that believers have to desire to know God and be known by God. I know a lot of Christian people, by the way, who growing up in the, in the church all my life, who would say, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know God. I sat in all kinds of sermons. I sat in all kinds of Sunday school classes. I remember who my teacher was. But you really, you realize, knowing of God doesn't often sometimes even equate for believers to saying, I want him to know me. You can know of him, but you can have less appreciation for all the ways in which he works. And it is the duty of the Christian life to continue to prepare the mind to praise this almighty person who gives purpose and meaning in all of what we do. Now, if you look at the structure of the psalm, often these are given in, in, uh, in hymnic kind of fashion. And this particular psalm, you'll notice, it's broken down really into four stanzas. Uh, and, and so we're going to cover each of these areas, and we're going to see them very deliberately. Verses 1 to 6, verses 7 uh, all the way through 12. And then you're going to see verses 13 to 16 and then 17 on all the way to the end. And he has something to say very specific about his God that is generated from this harm that might be brought to him. And so what we're going to see in, in, in this particular psalm is I'm going to break it down into three particular avenues. We're going, to, we're going to talk a little bit about the psalmist's declaration. When he views his situation and he views his God in light of his circumstances, what does he begin to think about his God? And how should we begin to think and remind ourselves about our God? Then we're going to move to the psalmist's deliberation. What does all this pondering then move him to? How does he begin to have it shape the way he thinks? And then we're going to notice it goes to the deepest part of who he is, and it goes to the very motive of what he desires God to do for him and how he desires God to know him. So let's start in our first stanza of this particular psalm, Psalm 139, uh, verse number one through six says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word was, was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Do you notice some different things that the psalmist begins to recognize about his God? In the midst of adversity, in the midst of trouble and pain and, and, and possibility of death, you know, one thing that was going in the minds, on in the minds of the Israelite people, and, and David recognized this while he was penning the Psalms, by the way, it wasn't just about him, so that if they read the Psalm, they would go, oh, oh, this is for David, not for me. It was the whole nation of Israel was being called to say, what do we do when people are out to destroy us? What do we do when circumstances feel like they're so weighty, so oppressive, so alarming? Who do we go to? And over and over again, David recalls these things. And, and I love how he starts this. He begins to say, he, he says this, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. And I think it's very, it's very challenging for us to think, uh, God knows you. And then you think, okay, how well does he really know you? You know those people who like, you know of them, and then there's people like, you know them. And somebody comes up to you at some particular point, and they say, hey, do you know so-and-so? Oh, yeah. And then they realize, you don't really know him like, like I do. Because if you knew them, then maybe, maybe you'd be saying something a little different. Do you realize this? 
that our God, in the midst of an infinite wisdom, an infinite knowledge, knows you to the greatest degree, what you do, how you think, what's valuable to you, and he still loves you. He knows every little facet of every little detail, of every wrong thought, of every despairing moment, of every anxious idea that comes across your mind. And this, God knows you. He has searched you. He has, he has called you by name. This is the very thing that gives way to the psalmist's expression of praise to be able to say in a very poetic fashion, you know when I sit down, Lord, and you know when I rise up. Yes, he knows that who in here was waking up late this morning and just made it to church. He knows you. I'll find out who you are. And then I will know you. But isn't this amazing? He knows when we rise up. From, from the moment we, we wake, from the, the very beginnings of our day-to-day -day structure, from the moment we close our eyes and we stop thinking various thoughts that are restful for us, our God does not stop thinking of us. He protects us. He protects our children. He protects those that we care about. His knowledge is so expansive, the psalmist is saying, that it's filled with the knowledge of our activity. He knows when we get up and, we, and, and when, we, when we sit down and we rise up, and it's beyond that. His knowledge extends to our very thoughts, I'm going to pause for a moment just to, just to recognize this. Isn't it somewhat scary that he knows every single thought that you think in your mind? I mean, but, but the reality is, he knows all of who I am. He knows all of, what, of the way I struggle. He knows when, when somebody cuts me off and in my mind, in my thought, I'm like, what are you doing? Oh boy, He knows. He knows if I'm frustrated with a brother or sister in Christ. He knows where my affections are. He, he doesn't only, he's not only acquainted with activity. He's acquainted with the mind that produces the activity. And even beyond that, when you think about the deep knowledge of you in the mind of God, it goes from activity to the very thoughts that produce that activity to the very desires and motives that rule the hearts of every single human being that has ever lived and walked the face of this earth. You notice how he just continues to dig deeper in his, in his appreciation for this, this incredible, omniscient God. And that's what he's doing. You notice the psalm. He's expressing the very attribute of God's omniscience of who he is. And he just, it just begins to burst out. You've ever had those moments? You're probably just in the car by yourself and you're probably praising the Lord and then you notice someone's looking at you and you're like, oh boy. Uh, this is what David does. But he lets everyone see. He says, oh my God, you, you, are, you are the, the God who is up when I am up. You, are, you, are, you don't go to sleep when I go to sleep. You care for me. You, you want to know my, you know my thoughts. And beyond that, in verse number five, he says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. I don't know about you, but there is nothing more precious than to think about the very presence of God in the midst of a soul that is having a hard time being quieted. And I watch this sometimes, this experience I had, even just last night, I'm in my hotel room, and uh, it's late, my children are an hour ahead, and I'm thinking, why am I getting a phone call right now from one of my little girls? And I pick up the phone, and she says, Daddy, I just need you to pray for me, because I'm struggling thinking certain things right now. Can you do that for me, Daddy? You know what, the calming presence of the God of heaven, as if he, he hems us in behind and before for us almost to lay his hand on us and go, it's okay. Everything is going to be all right. That is the kind of God that we have. He knows need our need for being cared for. Do you realize what a train wreck your life would be if God wasn't heavily involved in your life? I mean, I look back at various moments, if God wouldn't have stopped me thinking this, or stopped this from happening, or stopped this from occurring, my life would look so different. And yet this all-wise, 
all-encompassing God loves us to such a degree that he is so attentive to who we are. Believers, this ought to cause you in your own quiet moments of your soul during devotions or family worship time or here as you sing and you think, this is my God. This is the God who searches me. This is the God who knows me. I love the, the terminology and expression. You hem me in from before and behind. You love that. He like, he bookends us. He's like, you're not getting out of this. And you're going to, I started, it started with me at the very beginning, in the beginning, God, and it's going to end with me in relation, being on the throne of God, and you and all the rest of the world exalting who I am. He doesn't just bookend our lives, believers. He bookends the life of the entirety of earth history. And for the psalmist to recognize this kind of praise starting to erupt from his own soul, you notice what it's supposed to do for you is to calm you. Because we have all kinds of things that are going on. I don't know what's happening in your life right now. I know what's happening in my life. A lot of different change, a lot of different thoughts, where we're going to be, where we're going to live. And there are moments where my wife and I look at each other right now and go, okay, stop thinking about it. Like there's just a lot to think about. Have you had those moments before? Perhaps it's a test or a school or end of the semester or perhaps it's a, a, a something that's really huge in your life and you just have to think, i got to stop. Because if I let my mind unravel, it's going places that it shouldn't go. And you know what usually happens for me? It happens when I'm all by myself and I'm given, and I'm given to my own thoughts and I think, well, what if this could happen? What about this over here? Well, oh man, if that happens, then this is surely going to happen. And I have to back up and say, wait a minute. I have a God who has searched me, who knows me, who hems me in from before and behind. And he cares about me, which means everything's going to work. It may not work the way I thought it should work. Praise God for that. But it will work the way he wants it to work. And the psalmist begins to recognize this and he begins to explode with a level of praise. And in the verse 6, you notice he just stops at the end of this and he just says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high. I can't even attain it. I mean, I remember thinking uh, as, as I brought these little children home, thinking like, what are they going to do? Oh, what am I supposed to do now? And now what are they going to be? How am I supposed to do this? I'm so inadequate. And God, are you going to give them a direction? Because I, I mean, and then later on in the teen years, I'm thinking, Lord, please, God, give some of them direction. Uh, and God does it. And slowly and in his own particular time and way, I, I, I find myself saying, God, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And I find myself in my own personal time with God just stopping for a moment and saying, God, you are so above us. You know every detail of all earth history from the beginning of time until the end. And here I am struggling to trust you. Whether or not you'll have this happen and then this happen and then this happen. Instead of just saying, God, you are in control. God, you will bring about your will and begin to pray for that. The psalmist says this knowledge is so high, it's often expressed by other writers of the scriptures like the prophet Isaiah when he says in Isaiah 55, 9, when he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Aren't you so glad about that? I mean, do you realize that we, what we experience in a world that has been impacted by sin is, is what a world would look like if humanity was in control? They do every possible thing that they could do to try to enforce some reality that God is not in control. You realize that's what Sanctity of Life Sunday is trying to express. A reality of a life where God is needed where purpose and meaning only come from the living God who's created all the inhabitants of the earth from every time period in history. 
And yet we find that our world goes through great lengths to do great things to try to remove God from every moment of people's lives. And as Christians, we ought to be in tune with the reality that do we pray for that? Do we pray for God to do what only God can do to safeguard the life of so many situations simultaneously and he has the wisdom and the power to do it? You find this with Job, do you not? In Job 40, we love the first chapter of Job because, I mean, Job just responds so immense and in, in in incredible in his worship, doesn't he? I mean, I don't know how many people I've heard at one point or another in their life go, I just want to respond like Job. They're like, me too. Do you want Job 40 though? Because all of a sudden, he starts with praise and all of a sudden, Job 40, he's beginning to struggle with God's control and God's design of all that God would do. And then he says this, uh, when God says, Job, I mean, I just don't want to be told this by God, sit down. I got a couple of things to say to you. Like, now you're going to answer me. And he's, this is what Job says in Job 40, verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? And I just lay my hand over my mouth. You know what that expression is? Is I dare not speak of things that are too lofty for me. Is your walk with God like that in your own personal time where you seek as a believer to, to see the wonder put on display in the very pages of scriptures of the God who cares about you, the God who loves you, where you end with this knowledge is too much. I love it even in our Sunday school class this morning as we're finishing up, somebody just, a number of people made the comment, this is just too amazing. Like, don't you feel that way when you get, when you get done with, with being next to the living God through the pages of the scripture? Wow, he does that. He, he builds within our own soul an appreciation for this incredible living God. And there's something special, by the way, about being known. Now, you probably experienced this at some point in time. Uh, my parents always did this when we would uh, go on vacation as a family. And on Sunday, we would find a church and we would go there And I remember as a young person, it was like, oh man, we're not going to our church. And then you walk in and you see all these unfamiliar faces and and you kind of sit down and it's really awkward. And the worst, when my parents said like, you're going to Sunday school too and we're not going to be there with you. Like, oh man. Like I had four other brothers, so some of them were old enough. I was like, all right, let's bind together. We can make through it. We can go through this. We can do it. But it's, it's like you're not known there. You don't know the people there. You don't have connection with them. You know, part of the reality of what I'm, I'm, I am so looking forward to is getting to know you, not just know of you. And that's part of the beauty of, of, of Christian relationship and the Christian community is that we, not just, we don't just have the opportunity to know each other in a setting like this. We have an opportunity to actually get to know more intimately each other in our lives, know what each other struggle with, know how we can pray for each other, to come alongside of each other in caring and godly ways so that we can then, as we honor God together, say, His ways are too wonderful for us, aren't they? That's what God wants from the believers and for the community of believers. He was so enthralled. Even even the world, by the way, gets this. I remember passing in various components that, that old show, Cheers. Perhaps you remember it. And their theme song, where everybody knows your name. You realize that a God... The God of heaven knows even, even what earth people here on earth desire, what they think they desire, they don't even desire it in a way that God wants them to. And God knows them. And this is so incredible for us to think, yes, he even knows our enemies. He knows people who are right at this very moment persecuting Christians. He knows them, he loves them, and he wants to, he sent his son to die for them. He loves every part of individuals who bear that image, even if they don't even fully recognize it. And there will come a day, by the way, where everyone who is known by God will have this, will, we have this opportunity now, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, not only to know of God, but to be known by God as his child. 
There is a transfer that happens that the Bible calls adoption. That all of a sudden, you who are a child of darkness now become an adopted son and child or daughter of the living king and you live in the light. Do you realize that so many people in this world are going to come to the end of their life and they're going to realize the God that they fought so hard to stay away from and say that didn't exist will be face to face with the living creator and he will say, I do know you. This is reminded to us in Matthew 7. But in reality, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And he says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You realize if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save your soul by recognizing that you're a sinner and without repenting of your sin, you will never come to be adopted and known intimately by God. There will be a moment in your life where God says to you, I know you, but now I never, it's as if I never knew you. Depart from me. I wish that on no one. And I hope as you think about people in in your own life and in your own sphere uh, of, of circles, where you're saying, who do I know that doesn't know God? Are you going about trying to share this with them? Are you taking time out of your ever so busy schedule where you can finally say, no, I, I need to meet with this person. I want to help them know who God is and what God brings to them. The psalmist is so desirous because he knows that God has known him and has searched him. He moves on in verse 7 from this, from this incredible uh, view of God where he knows his omniscient perspective of all things. And now he moves on to this other attribute of, his, of God's omnipresence. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascended into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now pause for a moment. When you think about the the concept and the writer's idea and use of Sheol, it's not saying, if I go to the highest of heavens, God is there, and if I go to hell, then God is there. God isn't in hell. Sheol is the Old Testament perspective, by the way, that they would describe it in the Hebrew mindset as the realm of the dead, a place where life no longer is vibrant, a place where life no, no longer has activity. But you know what's unique? is that even after death, in the, in the realm of Sheol, people think. People have an awareness of God even after their physical body has passed away. And what the psalmist is saying is, you can't run from him no matter what. He is everywhere. Whether you are living or whether you are dying, you will meet the Creator no matter what. Jonah found that out very quick. In his life, as he, tried to, as he tried to run from God, and this reality where he came to this conclusion, God, there is nowhere I can run from you. And then he continues, he says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost, muttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Notice what he does. He gives the vertical perspective. If you could go as high as you could go, and as you could go as low as you could go, now he says, if I take the wings of the dawn... If I could get on the wings of an eagle and I could ride him from the dawn of the morning to the setting of the sun, I will never get to a place where you are not there. Oh, believer, I can tell you this. There, that ought to be a comforting component to your soul. No matter if you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I've been running from God and I've been away and distant from God, guess what? You're never going to run to a place where God is not there. He is always trying to draw you to a relationship with him. Whether that's an initial relationship of a saving faith, we recognize that from John 6, that no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. But what if you're a Christian and you're out of fellowship with God, as 1 John often describes? Do you realize that God is in the midst of where you're at right now? And it is never too late to come back and say, God, 
I haven't been thinking and acting and desiring and loving and appreciating all the things that you have, that you have made known to me through your scriptures. You repent, and guess what he does? It's like this father who just says, get over here. Like, you thought I didn't want to see you? I want to see you. I know you. I know who you are. You think I'm going to let you go? No, I'm not letting you go. This is what our Father in heaven does, and the psalmist recognized that and inscripturated it in such a way for, for the nation of Israel to say, God is never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And it's fascinating that even when he talks about the forgiveness of our sins, he says it's as far as from the east is from the west. How can he do that? It's not that all of a sudden he says, I don't know or I've forgotten about your sin. Is he knows every detail of how you sinned, where you sinned, who you sinned with, all of those things, and he chooses to not bring it on to your, up to your account again. It's not that he doesn't know it. He's an omniscient God. If he would forget things, then he would no longer be omniscient. But here we have a God who chooses to say, I will not hold all the things because I know you, I love you, and my son has died for you. Oh, believers, this is a message that needs to go out to, to our communities because there are so many people who are lost without Jesus Christ. And we need to be able to share with them that there's no way that they can run from him. And as the psalmist continues, he's, he just simply states in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I mean, the psalmist you know, every time you see often in the Old Testament this idea of the right hand, I mean, think right hand of strength and security. Where, for example, even in the New Testament where he says, and Jesus sits on which side? Not the left. It's the right. Because the right was always displayed as this right, secure, strong hand of God. And he says, in your shade, he said, you will shade, your, your shade will be about me, and there your hand will lead me, and not just any hand, but it will be your right hand, and you'll guide me. And you know what that means? You may be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, I need to grow, and I need to do these things. Guess what? God, by his sovereign work, has given you the scriptures, so by the scriptures, as if he can take your hand and guide you to himself. Because you know the biggest problem, even for Christians, is, is all of a sudden, we want to kind of it's like, you ever see, I watched this with my kids as they were, you know, really little and you'd walk, you see a parent walking with a kid, kid's hand, hand in hand, they're walking down. Pretty soon your kids get old enough and they're like, I don't need your hand anymore. Like, I can walk on my own. I know what kind of decisions I need to make. I can, and you'll experience this the older they get. Like, I remember one time one of my children said to me, well, dad, you're, you're old. What do you know? I remember thinking, Oh, how dare you? Like, do I know? And, then, and our, their problem is, it's like, we kind of want to pull our hand away and say, we know. Believers, we don't. The only thing that we know that is praiseworthy and is valuable is what is in here. Because it's only the things that are in here that are in scripturated revelation of God that we can be secure, that these things are true. These things are right. These things have moral weight. So that when we come to, the, to a relationship with the living God, we don't have to say, well, God, I didn't know. I said, well, why didn't you get in there and look? Because I, I want you to know me. And he went through great effort. What do you think revelation is? It's a way to know God. And it's a way for us to recognize who we are in light of God. He moves on in verses uh, 7 through 12 just to help us realize the, the ever-presence of the living God. And then he really comes to this, this section where he begins to say, okay, I know you know me, and I know you're everywhere. And now he gets to this section in verse 13 to 16, and I think he really just ask, answers the question, how did you acquire such knowledge about me? And this is what he says. For... for for you formed, David says, my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And your eyes, Lord, saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. And then he just again explodes. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. See, God cares about so, so often uh, what is going on in the culture. Does God care for the life of the unborn children that we see? We, we think about these uh, particular statistics. This is staggering when you think about the statistics of abortion. I have one slide that I want you to be able to see. Look at this. From 1973 to 2018, 61.8 million plus abortions, which is 2,362 plus per day, and 98 plus, and one abortion every 96 seconds. This is staggering to think that we live in a world that seems to discard the very formation and, and the very people that God has, has chosen to bear his image. I love Sundays like this, and, and even to think about it culturally together, because if there's one thing that Christians ought to be for, it's for life. Because God cares about life. Because God is the one who originated life. God is the one who formed every little child that ever comes from the womb. Yes, at one moment, your parents were looking at you going, God did that. God is doing something. You know what? From the beginning of life to the end of life, it is so important for us to realize that not only is God involved, but God, not only that you can't, that God knows you, but that he cares so much about you that no one can stop the days that God has numbered for you except for God alone. As we live in a world that so often emphasizes levels of free choice and disposition towards saying, you know what, we want to be our, the own rulers of our life. We want to be the one who, who attributes when life begins. It almost bothers you, it should somewhat bother you in some sense when you hear someone talk about a baby like a fetus. Doesn't it? It's like, is it more than that? No, it's a person. It's, it's a living being who bears the very image of God. I even think that oftentimes in culture we create, even the culture creates terms to disassociate things from the way God has bore the image of the creator on individuals' lives. We ought to say, no, we want to we recognize God's element of control. He certainly did. In the very beginning of time in Genesis 9 verse 6, you see this issue. Now here in Genesis, it's an institution of capital punishment on the earth. But notice how he, why he, he institutes this. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And I hope that's whether from the earliest of, the, of children who are still in the womb till the, through the latter stages of life, and every place in between, we as Christians find ourselves saying, no. Life matters because God creates it and God ordains it. Let me just ask you this. How often do you pray for the unborn? We have so many here who are waiting to be able to see face-to-face -face those little image bearers that they will one day see. You know, often as a pastor, you sit beside these young couples and some of the most devastating moments to see, to see them lose the very precious thing, and to say, and, and have them anchor their soul to God. Because God has a plan for everything, for life, for death, all of it. But you know what? God designed these, these little persons inside of the womb. And I love the way he, the, the psalmist describes it. He says, these intricately woven individuals who were knit together in the secret dark place. Now, I love it because he uses the Old Testament imagery of knitting together because the, the other places where that terminology is used is in the tapestry of the tabernacle where they were formulating all of the intricate woven work and they said, when we get done with this, this masterpiece that has been woven together will display the majesty in at least pictorial fashion of what we think about God. And that's the term he uses. These little miniature masterpieces in the womb who have been woven together by the very hand of God who loves them, who knows them. You know what David was thinking? 
This is what I think he's going on in the psalm. As these people want to be after him, and he's got all these people trying to destroy his own kingdom, he's saying, God, I'm one of those who's been woven. I'm one of those who's been knit together. And God, you care for me. And Israel, don't ever forget, God cares for us. And he has knit us together. He has brought us together as a nation when, we, when there were no nations. And then he created nations and he selected us because not because we're some tremendous nation, but because he in his sovereign hand wanted to put on display God's nature and God's person through the life of a nation. The psalmist and David knew that. David knew that. And he said all of this continued to help in his own soul to realize how much God cared for him. And as he continued, we see, we see him move through this. And then he just says, again, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And I would just dare to say, you can read your Bible all your life and you're never going to come to the end of, of, of knowing more about God. Have you realized that? I mean, I've been in church all my life. From the time that I can even remember, I've been in church. And it's like I still have an exhausted understanding. Like, oh, oh yeah, I knew that. There's moments I'm getting in my devotions going, how did I miss that? How is he so good? And I, I didn't even, in that area, and I didn't even see it. It's because God in his sovereign hand orchestrates events so that your eyes will be open to who he is so that you can appreciate him. Now he comes to this section, which is often a very difficult one because this is the situation that David was in. And he says, he says, in verse 18, he ends his summation of his thoughts. He says, if I would count them, the days, he says, there are, there are more than the sand, and if I awake, I am still with you. And then he moves on and says, he says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. You're like, don't you kind of get done with these imprecatory realities? And you kind of go, woo, David, like, settle down. <laughs> like, that's harsh. Can you imagine saying to that to somebody in the, in the streets in our culture? Like, having them here... I hate you with a righteous hatred. No, you can't say that just to your spouse just because you say, it's in the Bible. <laughs> oh, I hate you with a complete hatred right now. No, see, what David is doing is saying, God, when I see your ways, your involvement, your immensity of who you are, the fact that you bookend all of our lives and you have these people who want to destroy your plan. He, what David is saying is, because they hate your ways and they hate your authority and they hate the way that you do things, I hate what you hate. I mean, it should alarm you all of a sudden. I mean, if all of a sudden we get to talk, if we get to discuss topics of, of things like abortion in the culture or any other horrendous non-biblical view that goes on in a culture and we don't simply go, that just makes me mad that someone would do such a thing. If there's nothing like going on in your own soul, it, when, when you see something or somebody uh, trying to uh, just advocate for saying, oh, it's fine, we, we just, just kill them. And something doesn't go on in your, in your own soul, there's something wrong. Because what David is saying is, when God says I hate something, what is the Christian supposed to do? To hate it as well. But it doesn't mean that we hate people. Because the people bear his image. It is our, our job as believers to say, well, let's go wipe that out. No, 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 no. Should we be praying? Absolutely. Should we be begging God to show them and to draw them even in the midst of their own pursuit of godlessness? Yes. And as, as believers, we ought to take advantage of the, of the fact that of the throne room of God that we can go as the priesthood of the believer and say, God, do what only you can do. Save life where it needs to be saved. And you know what? As, as we look at David's perspective, it's right for believers to hate what God hates. Have you ever tried, like, hate has a level of emotion to it. It's not like, 
I hate you, and I do nothing. Do you notice when people finally get to that point in their life, they have a scowl, they have a disgust. That's the way we should look at our sin. It's the way that we look at our life if we're trying to live it without God. We say, I should hate when I go to try to do things where God is not at the center. And I should look at the world and say, when those who are godless do things that are in opposition to the living God, I ought to hate the pursuit of godless behavior. And we ought to pray that God changes the course of their events. And what great stories, and so many of them there are, where only God could bring someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ who was an advocate for some uh, godless life and godless authority. And now, like the Apostle Paul, is declaring the very beauty and majesty of the living God. You know what? I bet at various times, we, we, if we sit back and look, we'll say, you know what? There are moments in our life where I haven't done such a good job at displaying the very majesty of God. And God wants you to turn from those things, to hate what he hates, to hate the things that are godless, to hate the things in, in, in the culture in a way that leaves it in God's hands. And he moves all the way through simply for us to say things like, we are these image bearers of God. Believers, as we look with, to one another and we see each other's faces, we are reminded that from the earliest moments of our life to the, to the fullest, maturest adult, whether that child has cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, no matter what ailments they, they, they struggle with, brain deficiencies, these people are people God created who need to be fought for, prayed for, cared for, the way the living God cares for us. He's not so concerned whether, uh, whether or not we match the standards of world, the world's beauty, whether we display the physique of a, of a well-trained athlete, whether our identity and what we do in our life and vocation is something that everyone else appreciates. God wants you to know him, and he wants you to be known by him. He moves to the very last moment of this, and he says this, this, he shows his desire. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Believers, I just encourage you, sometimes we don't pray this prayer because we're afraid of what God sees in our life. Sometimes we're ashamed of what we know God will see if we ask him to search our own heart. But our desire, and as the psalmist is saying here, he's saying, God, I know you know me so intimately, and I know that you know I hate what you hate, and yet he says, search me, oh God, and know my heart. You know what he's doing? He's giving God full access and he's saying, I bet, and I, did you notice this, try me and know my thoughts, which God will do, and then see if there be any grievous way in me. And if there is any grievous way, lead me to the way everlasting. Believer, I think we should be able to pray this prayer. I think it's one of the prayers that this psalm calls us to pray is God search me. I know you know me, but help me see if there is any wicked way in me where I'm not agreeing with your authority, where I'm, where I'm not agreeing with your ways, where I'm trying to pull my hand away and walk on my own and do things on my own. God, help me. I need your leading. Search me. And if, and if there's any way, you know what he's praying? He's praying saying, God, make me aware of who I am. Man, I need that prayer. Because I'm, I'm such a despicable sinner that I don't even recognize the depth of my own sinfulness sometimes. And I say, God, please make me aware. And if you do, then I will run to the throne of grace where you know me and you'll forgive me. And I can remove this grievous way that was in me and I can continue to be led into the way of everlasting Believer, we'll never know God if we're not in his word. We'll never know God if we're not binding ourselves to relationship with people who care about God. Lord, we won't, we won't know 
We won't be known by God if we don't make a deliberate effort, even in our own life, to say, I want to know you. Christian, I think it's good for us to examine, where's your desire to know God? Do you really desire it? There's only kind of a Sunday desire. Like you wake up with that on Sunday, but the rest of the six days it's not there. It has to be a perpetual desire. How are you helping other people develop that desire? The people that you're around, are you finding yourself not only lamenting together, but also praising together? Saying, this is a God who loves us and cares for us. This is the God that we serve. A God who cares, loves, protects, guides, leads, who knows all of who we are. And by the way, he absolutely loves us with an incredible, inseparable love that one day, hopefully soon, he shows up and he takes us all to be with him and we see him face to face. And the Bible says when we see him, we will know him because we bear the image that he created us with. And we have been sealed with the mark of the Spirit that he has given to every single believer who knows him and who has put their faith in him. Believer, we ought to sit back and say, these things are too wonderful for me. Your thoughts are high. Your thoughts are lofty. God, I just need to praise you and recognize your presence in my life and the fact that you're going to sustain me and care for me from beginning to end. That's the God that we have, the God that we can praise together. Let's pray as we close. Father, as we look at the words that, David, that you allowed David to pen down, we too step back for a moment in awe of who you are when we come to your word and we see your, your incredible wisdom and knowledge and we see your presence. Lord, that you're there for us in the midst of, of the pain. You're there for us when things jeopardize our life and, we're, and we struggle, but you're there for us for, to praise you. Lord, help us to do that better. Lord, help us as we, as we look as individual Christians and we ask you to search our own hearts to see if there's any grievous way in us. Lord, that we, would, that we would humble ourselves before your presence, repent wherever it's necessary and as much as it's necessary to bring us back into the fellowship that we have with the living God who gave us his image. Lord, thank you for doing this for us and help us as we even think about our own world and the culture that we live in who seems to often desire to eradicate life and dispense of it when you value it so much. Lord, help us to pray, Lord, and we pray for so many who are in situations even now that are contemplating perhaps even ending a life. Lord, that they would be brought into the presence of the living God through a faithful Christian or through them reading your word that they would value what you value. Lord, help us as a, as a congregation to pray for, the, for, for life from beginning to end that we would value it the way you do. In your name we pray, amen.